Some of you are probably sitting in the room going, what the heck just happened? Why are we singing about a continent that we're not in? And I'll explain in a second. Um, if you don't know who I am, if you're visiting and you're new, my name is Connor, and I have the privilege of leading the team that, le that leads this community. Um, and um, I am very, very much still in awe of how the Lord is um, working in this house and in 24-7 and what He's doing, um, that He would take a little farmhouse in North Riding, throw a group of ragtag rowdy people in there um, who sing weird, wild songs and just go, go all out with what the Lord's saying and just seeing how He's building a people um, for His presence. And I just want to encourage you, really, in this hour, you're going to see this more and more, uh, especially in our city. The temptation is to follow the trends of this world. Um, and it's just, that's not the heart of God. And when we stay and we hold fast to who He is and His heart for the church, we realize God's building a people. Uh, we could meet in a farmhouse, we could meet in a stadium, we could meet under a tree. Um, the reality is God rests on a people, He never rests on a building or a place. Can I just encourage you that Old Testament, before Jesus came, God was, was found in a temple. The Ark of the Covenant, He was found in a temple, found in a location. And it was never His heart because there was separation with a, a veil where people couldn't come in and only the priests could go in and it was only on certain terms and conditions and only at a certain time of year and all this stuff was happening. It was never God's intention. And I'll tell you why, because when Jesus died, He ripped the veil from top to bottom. Meaning this, God is not trying to find a group of people that will put him back in a room. He wants you to understand that he wanted out of the room and onto a people. And so he's actually not looking for your act of worship this morning. <clears throat> he's looking for worshipers. The difference between an act of worship and a worshiper is that an act of worship is something we do on Sunday mornings. A worshiper is who you are. It means when you leave this place and you wake up tomorrow and you've got to go into spheres of influence that are difficult and tough and life gets crazy, you're a worshiper. Can I explain what a worshiper is? I believe worshipers are, are earthly throne builders who are exalting and magnifying Jesus. And wherever God is not exalted, something else will be. <clears throat> There's evidence of this all over the world. In fact, you see it in Joburg. If God's not exalted and worshipped in Joburg, guess what has been? Money. And then you say, okay, well, that's Joburg. What about the Middle East? Well, it's interesting that there hasn't been a whole lot of expressions of worshiping Jesus there. And so what has been exalted? Islam. And so wherever God is not exalted, wherever He's not worshipped, something else will be. And, and the lie that we were told for so many years in the church was, it's our job to tear down strongholds and principalities. And every time we do it, we get absolutely smashed. And it's because we're not called to tear them down. We're called to raise Jesus up. We're called to exalt Jesus and build and enthrone Him. And when we do that, He's pretty, pretty powerful. <clears throat> Isaiah 42 actually says he stirs himself up like a man of war and that he will defeat his enemies. So the beauty is we just exalt Jesus and he conquers because he's king. He's already won. All we're doing is, see, here's the thing. Jesus has the victory. We're called to walk in triumph. Triumph is walking in the manifestation of victory. We don't have to fight for victory. We have it. Triumph is us believing that he actually did it. Amen? That's for free. You can just have that one. I'm teasing it's so good. I'm excited. We're starting a series this morning um, on Antioch. And the reason why we're doing that is because it really does define so much of what God's called 24-7 to be and to do. You would have heard me say this many times. I am not interested in filling rooms. I'm interested in filling people. Amen? 
because the reality is we can go after bums on seats and try and be a successful image of something and have zero impact on cities and regions. That's not, our, that's not the call of God for the church. The mandate on the church is to see people filled with, with the reality of who God is. See, if we are attending church, attending uh, home groups, doing all the Christian things because it's a religion and we tick the boxes, but never have a personal experience of being filled with God Himself, what's the point? See, the thing that saved my life was the reality of God, not the idea of Him. The idea of God you know, can be impressive at first, but the reality is if you don't touch, taste, see, experience, and have a personal encounter with Him, it's just a message. But the power in the message comes because He's a good Father who loves His kids and made, He made it possible for us to have a relationship with Him. What Jesus did on the cross was not just to remove our sins so we can feel better about ourselves. He became sin for us so that we would become like Him, so that we could have a relationship with God. And the church has been so focused on sin, preaching this sin message about get your act together, deal with your problems, you're a mess. <laughs> and then we see that the church is broken and tired and weak, and so we just begin to settle for uh, Sunday morning experience, feel good, make sure you get a good latte at the door, high five, 15 minutes of worship, 5 minutes announcements, 15 to 20 minute word, and uh, seven, seven steps to your successful business. High five, great day, go and have lunch. <clears throat> and we've missed the whole point. I'm just being real with you. If that's, if that's, the, if that's Christianity, if that's the gospel, I don't want it. <clears throat> and I'm telling you now, the only people who want that are people looking for some, something that makes them feel better about their current state, but they don't want to be transformed. It's the epitome of self-righteousness. It's make me feel better about myself, but I don't really want my heart to be changed. See, I think maybe just because of my story and my life, I've told you this before, I am not impressive. I have, I have no, nothing to boast in. In fact, my life is a mess without Jesus. And because of Jesus, He gave me purpose and He gave me direction and He gave me a dream. It's not my dream, it's His dream. And it's the only time in my life I found fulfillment. It's the only time in my life I found this is something I want to say yes to because it's Him. See, if it's His vision, it's His provision, right? It's His tab. It's a lot easier to say yes to something where the pressure's not on you. If you have to manufacture it, you have to sustain it. And you're just not made for that. Like, you're not, you're not made to, to produce righteousness on your own. You cannot be right with God without Jesus. We've got to stop preaching a message that's like, hey, Jesus gave you a second chance. You better get your act together And because how many times do you want Him to do that? It's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus paid the price once and for all because He's really after your heart. He actually really loves you. He wants you. He's drawing you. He's wooing you. He's calling you. And the, the thing is, if He's not real and He can't reveal Himself to me, then the whole thing's pointless anyway. But I haven't met a single person who pursued Jesus and never met Him. Majority of the time you've got people saying, yeah, well, I gave God five minutes and He didn't show up. I had that quiet time and I bought that devotional book and I read three pages of it and I felt nothing. And that's where we leave it. And it's like, man, I, I read stories of these guys in the early 1900s who were so desperate for God, they would pray and fast for seven months crying out and then suddenly they'd have this crazy encounter with God in their bedroom and the power of God would fill them and their lives were changed and... The reality is we need God, and God is so in pursuit of your heart. Sometimes He takes you on a journey where He's just removing some layers. Because can I just say this? Your perception or your perspective of the Father affects the way you're going to hear Him. So majority of the time we say God's just not showing up, but that's because you believe He's actually disappointed in you. 
And if you think he's disappointed in you, do you really think he's going to just, you know, your heart is not ready to hear what he has to say because he's probably wanting to tell you how proud he is of you. But all you think he's going to say is get your act together. And so we don't have a landing strip for God to speak. I'm saying this because right now in Johannesburg, I can feel it. I don't, maybe it's all over. I haven't been out of the city for a little bit, two or three weeks. Um, but I can feel the shift of just life trying to cause us to settle for a word about our identity that's less than what the Father says. Like, He loves us. No matter what. There isn't an obstacle between you and Him. The only obstacle that we can put, that we can put between us and Him is our own attempt at righteousness. When we rest in the fact that He loves you full stop, He's done it. It opens up a whole world. It's the dream of God. It opens up the plan of heaven in our lives. And it gives us purpose way beyond this earth, way beyond this life. I think the biggest struggle in humanity right now is that people are looking for purpose. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for meaning. And so they're trying to find it in money. They're trying to find it in work. They're trying to find it in relationships. They're trying to find it in families. They're trying to find it in success. And we have different measures of success, what we think success is. And I find it hilarious that Johannesburg, especially as a culture, has measured success by having enough money to be comfortable. And so one day you're 70 years old, walking on the beach, picking up shells for a living. And then we think we'll be happy. And maybe you will be happy for six months until eventually that cry in your heart starts to come alive again because you know you were born for something more than making money and picking up shells at the end of your life. I'm being cheeky, but you know what I mean. Now, am I against having good holidays and retirement? Of course, but whatever God leads you in, that's great. But I promise you this, you were born for something more. God's doing something in 24-7. This is not about being an impressive, successful church in Joburg. This is about following Jesus. This is about being a people that are after His heart. This is about seeing the dream of God come alive on the earth. And if you're living life up and down and turbulent like we all sometimes go through, I think often it's because our eyes, we take our eyes off of what He's doing and we begin to see what's happening around us and we let situation and circumstance begin to own us. But according to my Bible, He's Lord and Savior, not just Savior. He didn't just save me, He's also my Lord. The day is coming, I promise you, the day is coming where you're going to see radical shifts in people's lives. Radical shifts where God will take the missionary out in the, in the village that nobody knows about and suddenly give him a strategy to completely shift the nation's economy. Or he'll take the, the businessman who's making millions and suddenly he'll be out in the sticks <laughs> preaching the gospel to the villagers. You're going to see radical shifts. You're going to see... What, what we tried to do to define people, it's going gonna, it's gonna to break off. The definitions of man are falling off of the church, and suddenly it's like all we want to do is say yes to the dream of God. <clears throat> See, that's the only way the church actually becomes the answer to society. We're not the answer because we, we create nice gatherings that make people feel better. We are not a hospital for the broken. We're not. Do we love the broken? Of course, we're a, safe, a place of safety for people to come to. But if, if we're just a hospital, then what we do is patch up jobs. Broken people come in on Sunday, we patch you up for another week, we'll see you next week. What's the point? No, what, we, what we're about is seeing the grace of God transform our hearts and bring us into sonship, being sons and daughters, which changes everything about you. 
It was not my dream to lead a church. Nor is it my career. I would have much preferred to be a professional soccer player for Manchester United. <laughs> and I promise you I was on the trajectory for it. Let me I'm joking. I really back myself. <clears throat> but the reality is something happens when you encounter Jesus and your dreams, goals, and aspirations die because they were never going to satisfy you anyway. Do you know what happens is if, if we don't have a relationship with God, we're not walking with Him. We're, we're, we go after these things of the world, materialism. We're not actually happy, but we have to change our definition of happiness to make ourselves feel better about where we are. So now we go like, no, I can't complain. I've got enough money, enough comfort. I'm okay. And my kids went to school and or I, or I, you know, I can pay for everything that's needed. And we go on holidays every six weeks. And, and you know, that, the highlights of my life are that I'm comfortable. Just watch that person over weeks, over months, over years. They are not satisfied, not fulfilled, because the reality is you were born for more. Are those things good? I believe God blesses us. We can walk in those things and see the blessing of God. But I promise you, you were born to live for something more than that. Amen. Amen. If you disagree with me, that's okay. Just don't send me an email. <laughs> I remember being in India in 2016, 2016, in the slums of Varanasi, which, oh man, it's rough. There's only one place worse than that. It's in Cairo. It's called Garbage City. It's literally a city of garbage. It stinks. But it was kind of like that in Varanasi too. And I'll never forget this because we, I was walking to go and um, meet this it's the high priest of the Shiva temple and his dad was dying of cancer and they'd heard that people were getting healed and they wanted us to pray for him. So I was walking with the local pastor's son. We're going to this dingy cafe that's literally in a hole in a wall and the guy's making the chai. In, he's, he's closed up the gutter to make it a pot and he's like got the water and chai in there. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's rough, man. Let me tell you. Trials and tribulations for the gospel. Is anyway, we were going to this dodgy place in Varanasi and I'm walking and there's this heap of trash and suddenly this little girl comes around the back of the trash. She's about two years old and she's got a t-shirt on. That's all she's wearing. And she starts um, pulling the trash and she's looking for something to eat. <clears throat> and I remember um, I was so moved. I'm trying to talk to her and she, obviously she's two, you know. She doesn't know what's going on and she doesn't know English. She's Hindi. And um, I, couldn't, I couldn't leave this little girl because I'm watching her doing this. And the next thing, she walks up to a pipe that's coming out of this wall. And it's a sewage pipe. And she's trying to get water out of this pipe. And I'm just freaking out. And uh, I end up running into the convenience store. I get a blanket and I get water and like put the blanket around this little girl. And we're trying to, myself and this guy, trying to find um, who, who she is. Like there's this, just this little girl. And... Anyway, long story short, I was marked by this moment where um, I came to India going, you know, I brought the message of the gospel and I'm going to turn India upside down and it's going to be, you know, it's crazy, but it's just so arrogant. But then I just saw an opportunity to love one little girl. But what I saw was the dream of God 
because I began to realize that if the church is mobilized to care about the things that God cares about, that's how we see transformation in regions, not by impressive services and gatherings. And in the dust of Varanasi, looking at this little girl, I just felt the Lord begin to move in my heart, the, the dream of God for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And I remember those scriptures where he said, if you give the poor a cup of water, you've given me a cup of water. And I remember I came home, for, we were there, I don't know, two weeks or something, just over two weeks, and um, I didn't have a, a normal toilet. Um, I was the only guy, five ladies and me. And uh, <laughs> so many stories coming to my head. But uh, I had this little room with like a, a hole and like a plastic rim. <laughs> and that was my toilet for that time. And I remember when I got home, um, I walked into the bathroom, looked at the toilet, and I broke down and began to weep because I could push this button. And, yeah. <clears throat> and I, it shifted my whole world. I remember I had a dream in India where the Lord said, I've called you to the deepest, darkest places where no one wants to go. It's going to take a yielded yes. And I came home and I said, my, my dreams are done. The things that I desired to live for, they're done. Because there's something that matters more than just my life. There's something that matters more than just my family. There's something that, because the reality is, the way I feel about my family, there's a man on the other side of the world who feels that way about his. And then I go, if that's how we feel about our families, how does the Father feel about families? How does God feel about people? He cares about people. And so now it's like, we look at our city and we, we, we have to have more impact. But it doesn't happen because the church has programs like people come to, to 24-7 and go, what do you guys do for the poor? What do you guys do for outreach? And this is my response. I don't know what you do for outreach. What, what do you do for, for the poor? Because aren't we the church? But what happens is people want a system that looks good that I can say I'm a part of. Tick the box and go, yeah, I'm a part of a church that does outreach. The, the people have never actually been on the outreach. There's about 20 or 30 who do it every week. And the rest of them just go, yeah, I'm so glad I'm a part of that. We want to sign up for a cause instead of being changed by the reality of who God is. It was in India that I realized that the same way the Father loved me and wanted my heart and, and changed my life, that He was just looking for somebody to go and actually share the good news of who He is to others so that they could have the same experience. And he's so faithful that he's meeting them in dreams and visions. Like it's not dependent on me. He wants to work with us. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like it's not, if we don't do it, it's not like he's not going to do it. He wants to collaborate with us. He's, he's already revealing himself in dreams and visions all across that region. But he's looking for a people who become the hands and feet of Jesus. Give a cup of water. This is not the way I planned on starting. But... <clears throat> So I'm going to do my best to give an introduction to Antioch. And you say, what the heck is Antioch? It just sounds like a weird word. Well, Antioch in Acts chapter 11 and Acts 13 was a church that was birthed out of incredible revival. And they became an apostolic center to a whole region and are responsible for the Gentile world receiving the gospel. <clears throat> Let me put it this way. Without Antioch, you don't know about Jesus. Without Antioch, we don't get Paul. Without Paul, we don't get whatever it is, a third of, or the, the, you know, most of the New Testament. A, a community that gave themselves to Jesus that actually were part of seeing a whole region transformed. So if you have your Bibles and you can turn to Acts chapter 11. 
Is everyone okay? I know I'm a little intense. I'm trying to smile, okay? While you're finding actually 11, somewhere between Genesis and Revelation, um, I just want to say this. I believe that God uses the going to keep us grounded in the reality of His dream. It's why people go like, well, I don't know if I'm called to go. Garbage. You're all, we're all called to go. Maybe you're not called to go and live in Afghanistan. <laughs> or maybe you're not called to go and live in the slums of whatever, Kai Sands. Or, but we're all called to go. We're all called to carry the, men, the mentality and the, the heart posture of going to see the dream of God established on the earth. And by doing that, it refines our perspective of life. Can I just say this before we dive in that you know, I've said this many times, I never preach at you. This is, this is for my heart. This is us. I'm going, God, I want this in my own life. I am stirring up my own. If I get passionate and, and intense, it's because my own heart is being challenged by the reality of who God is. And I want that for all of us. Amen? Amen. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. So just to explain what's happened, Stephen was killed. Paul or Saul at the time, he was the one who actually validated and said, yep, approved, kill him. And, uh, and so there's been a scattering um, because of fear. So it says this, so then since they were unaware of these developments, meaning Peter saw Gentiles saved, they were unaware of this, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with the stoning of Stephen. And they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch without telling the message of salvation through Christ to anyone except Jews. So up until this point, Christianity is a Jewish movement. You getting that? There's been like a little bit, we've seen Cornelius' household gets touched. First time the Gentiles are experiencing the gospel. But aside from that, it has been completely just to Jews. And mostly because of fear. And so these people, you've got to understand, the, the stoning of Stephen, which was approved by Saul, terrified these people so much that they ran from Jerusalem to Antioch. It's far. <laughs> if you Just picture walking that. If you go check on your map, just go Jerusalem to Antioch. It's now called Antakya. We, we've been there. Uh, it's far. It's not an easy journey. They were terrified. These people were afraid. They ran all the way to Antioch. Now listen to this, verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Serene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks or the Gentiles as well, proclaiming to them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the hand or the power and presence of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Uh, the news of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, I've got to just encourage you, when you read your Bibles, you can't just read through it line by line and go, yeah, okay, that's cool. You've got to dig deeper and go, okay, ask some questions here. So what we're seeing is a group of people scattered out of fear. They'd only been sharing the, the message with the Jews, but there's a few men from Cyprus and, what is it, Serene, who come to Antioch and they, they had this little surge of boldness to actually preach to some Gentiles. What encourages, what encourages me about this is, first and foremost, we don't know their names, so they're not impressive people. They're just nobodies. That's you and me. But they had some courage to preach the gospel with boldness. And as soon as they did it, the Lord honored it with presence and power, and a whole great multitude comes to know the Lord. In other words, revival is hinging on, on, on the boldness of some people. It just takes a few. It just takes some people with a, a little bit of boldness to trust the word of the Lord, preach the gospel. The gospel. 
And a whole group of people come to know the Lord. And then the news reaches Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. And I get so moved by this because why did they decide to send Barnabas? They're sitting there. The news comes. Revival broke out in Antioch. There's a little bit of fear and and people are scattered. And so they're trying to navigate this season as a church. And word comes to them that revival broke out in Antioch. And they go, we need to send someone to go and actually figure out what's going on. Let's send Barnabas. Why Barnabas? So you've got to dig deep and you go and find in Acts chapter 4, the first time we hear about Barnabas is that he actually goes and takes one of his assets. Let me put it this way. Takes his retirement plan and gives it to the apostles for the church. This is wild. Here's a man who encountered God, was so wrapped up in the dream of heaven that he gave everything, his assets, all he had, sold the field and put it at the apostles' feet and said, this is for the dream of God, let's see it happen. That is nuts, that's wild. If that happened today, it would probably be incredibly offensive or it would be on, on the news. Some wealthy guy just you know, took everything he had, sold it and just gave it. You know, Nowadays we've got Father Christmas spirit, which is like, I'm quite impressed with myself that I actually gave that one-time donation of I've been there. I, I'm talking to myself. Here's a guy who's radical. He gave, he gave it all. And so now, ten, about 10 years later, if you study, he's sitting in this room, and they decide he's the guy who's, who they're going to send. And I believe Barnabas, his heart for the dream of God, giving up everything for Jesus, is what qualified him to be an apostolic father to a region. That, that Barnabas' heart had been prepared because of his yes in what he had at the time 10 years ago. And God knew at that time he was giving everything he had, just saying yes to the dream of God. He didn't know he was going to end up being this apostle to the Gentiles. But he gave it and he was faithful of what the Lord had done in, that, in his life in that season. And 10 years later, he's being sent to go and become a father to a movement that's being birthed in the Gentile world. And so they send Barnabas. Is everyone with me? When he arrived, he saw the grace of God. That's the marks of revival. People keep saying to us, why do you keep preaching on the grace of God? I'm like, because that's, the, that's what this is all about. He went to Antioch and what he saw was grace. He saw grace in action. He saw, he saw the grace of God on a community and he recognized it and said, this is God. So you go, okay, what is revival? I think it's when grace becomes real to a people. That's what revival is because it's dead things coming to life. Apart from him, you're dead. Grace makes you alive in him forever and one with him. I think that's revival. So he recognizes the grace of God on them. And then he encourages them. He rejoices and he says to them, uh, he encourages them with an, to continue with an unwavering heart to stay true and devoted to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. How do you know what a good man is? There's just two things. He's full of the Holy Spirit and he's full of faith. Okay, there's so many little treasures in here, but we'll just move through it quicker. Um, A great number of people were brought to the Lord, and Barnabas left for Tarsus to search for Saul. So just picture this. Barnabas gets sent. He gets to Antioch. Grace of God is on them. He's amazed. He's going, this is incredible. We saw this 10 years ago in Jerusalem when it started. This is the grace of God on a region, on a people. And he goes, I think what I'm going to do is uh, just encourage you guys to just keep going. It's like leadership 101, you know. This was Barnabas' moment to take his stand and be the man of the hour and the face of revival in Antioch, you know. Guaranteed today, many leaders would take that opportunity to put their face on the billboard outside the room where they meet. That was a little bit cheeky, but you know what I mean. (laughs) But he didn't do that. 
He remembered somebody, Saul of Tarsus, who before this we find out got saved, got knocked to the ground, encountered the Lord. He was the one who was killing Christians. He encounters Jesus, goes into the desert, gets this message, comes back, submits it to the church in Jerusalem, and says, Is this, I heard this message of grace directly from the Lord. Is this the gospel? And, and the, in Jerusalem they go, yep, that's great. Same message, same Jesus, love it. Um, and Paul starts to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, and it just took two weeks, and they wanted to kill him. And so Peter and the apostles and that were like, well, we don't know what to do with this guy. So what they do is they send him to Tarsus. Let me put it this way, they send him home. And so... Scholars say it might have been around five to seven years that he was in Tarsus just with the word. Saul, the guy who was killing Christians, now he's at home, probably carrying on with some tent making. And he's got this message, this word from the Lord that he's called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He's heard the grace of God, but he's just in a season of stewarding. Just being faithful, just being obedient. God, I don't know, you encounter me in the desert, here I am in Tarsus, what is going on? I know the word of the Lord over my life, but this is a season just to stay steadfast, just to wait on the Lord. But Barnabas gets to Antioch and he remembers Saul. And he goes, I remember the, the destiny of God, the word of the Lord over Saul's life. And I know that this is, this is the moment for him to step into this community so that God can take him into his destiny. That's what an apostolic culture does. That's what an apostolic father does. That's what, what somebody who, who understands the dream of God and is not attached to his own success comes in and goes, I've been given an opportunity to be the man, but instead of choosing to be the man, I'm going to serve somebody else to see the destiny of God come alive in their heart. I believe Barnabas was an apostolic father to Paul. And so he goes, he leaves. Revival's breaking out, amazing meetings. Guys, this is incredible, keep going. I'll see you in a couple months. Not many people today, not many leaders would leave a pumping revival, an opportunity to be successful, to go fetch one guy sitting alone for a couple of years because God has a plan for him and I want to see it come to fruition. So he fetches him and remembering that Antioch exists because Paul killed people. Just got to, I know you've heard me say this before. We've got, we got to remind ourselves. This is our Bible. We're actually reading real life here. Paul, the guy who killed people that put so much fear in them that they ran to Antioch. Barnabas goes to fetch him. And I, I always tell the story this way. I'm like, Barnabas says, church in Antioch, I've got great news. God has anointed this incredible man who we're going to bring here. He's going to equip the church. You, I can't wait for you to meet him. Um, anyway, doesn't probably say the rest. Goes off to Tarsus. Remember, it would have taken him some time to get there. It would have taken him some time to find him. He goes and finds Paul and brings him back. And I, I always imagine Barnabas going, Paul, you just stay behind me. Walks into the gathering. All the believers are together and they're singing. Uh, Jesus, you're worthy of the highest praise. You know? <laughs> Damien's shredding on the guitar. <laughs> and uh, Barnabas walks in and he's got Paul behind him and grabs the microphone and goes, Guys, the moment has come. I've got some incredible news. The apostolic leader that God has called for this season in Antioch, he's here. And are you ready? Like God is going to catapult us into our destiny as a church. It's going to be a fiery time. The only thing is, he just happens to be the guy who probably killed your brothers and sisters and cousins and arrested your uncle and put the fear of God in you that you ran so far to Antioch. It's Paul of Tarsus. Can you imagine? Like Paul is not the guy who ticks all the boxes of the right leader to lead a whole movement of a region. 
Do you get me? There's something about this community. Because let me just say this. They received him. They received him and, and they made a decision as a community to see him the way Jesus saw him. And they said, yes, he's made mistakes, but now he's a new creation. And so God's called him and assigned him. This is what Antioch communities do. They fight for the dream of God in sons and daughters. And so it says that for a whole year they met together. Multitudes, large numbers came together and were equipped. And then it says that it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. This is the first time that society looked at the church and went, that kind of looks like Christ. That, that way of life, Christians, little Christ, they look like, like versions, expressions of the, the guy that they called the Messiah that we heard all the stories about. He was causing an uproar in Israel. They look like him. They sound like him. And it's that community that created a context for the prophetic. We'll, we'll get into this over the coming weeks. But basically, Agabus is a prophet, and he decides to come to Antioch. That Antioch is the place where a prophetic word can be released about a whole region because they'll be the community that steward it well. And so he comes and he says, drought is coming. And it, I mean, if you study history, it happened. And he even says, in, in the time of the reign of Claudius, a drought is coming. And if you study history, there was a drought during that time. And so... <clears throat> A prophetic word for a region. We're talking about regional impact. That's the context. That's the environment. A community given to Jesus. The grace of God is evident. There's apostolic fathers fighting for the destinies of sons. Communities receiving sons and daughters and saying, we believe in what God's put inside of you. It's that community where the prophetic word for a region can come and be stewarded well. Because they gather together, they put a contribution together, and they say, we're going to actually take care of the church in Jerusalem during this draft. Powerful. So there's 12 characteristics that we're going to unpack over the next couple of weeks. And this morning, my heart is just to maybe like stir your heart a little bit about Antioch and just say, this, you, you want in on this. This is the, this is the kind of communities, what, what God wants to do in 24-7 church. I believe God's going to raise up Antioch communities all across the world. And He's doing that right now in Johannesburg. And it's, it, it looks different than what we think because success is measured differently. But you want in on this. Let me just tell you that. Because this is how we're going to see the Great Commission fulfilled. It's not just about sending laborers. It's about communities that pray. Because He didn't say, uh, get together and send out laborers. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would send out laborers. If we want to see the Great Commission fulfilled, our zeal to go needs to be matched by our zeal to pray. Anyway, 12 characteristics of Antioch. This is what we're going to unpack over the next couple of weeks. But I'm going to read through all 12 so that you know where we're going. The first one is bold obedience in preaching the gospel. It's a characteristic of an Antioch community. It's a characteristic of this house. We will not shy away from preaching the gospel. The gospel, the grace of God, it's good news. We won't shy away from preaching it boldly. Number two, we will be a Jesus-exalting community. Do you know that even prophetic songs start to become impressive because we get way too wrapped up in being prophetic and we forget that the whole point is about exalting Jesus? That actually the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So if it's not pointing to Jesus, we missed it anyway. But a Jesus-exalting community that's led by the Holy Spirit. Number three, they're movement-oriented. I love this. 
They're local and they're translocal. This is a community who cared about Antioch, and then they ended up uh, sending and commissioning uh, those that were carrying the, the assignment and the call of God to go, and they saw whole regions come to know Jesus. So they're a movement. They're not just a congregation. They're a movement. In other words, 24-7 church is not a Sunday morning gathering. 24-7 church is you and me and us together everywhere we go. It's why we meet in homes on Wednesdays and we have times together, but it's also why when you have, where two or three are gathered, right? Like when you go and have that coffee, when you go and connect with that person, invite that person to come and meet, you know, friends from the community, and you are a walking, living expression of the body of, of Jesus. Movement oriented. Number four, team oriented leadership. Like we have, I, I don't, I'm not a poster boy guy. I don't want to do that stuff, man. I'm, I'm not, we're not going to build around giftings and personalities. It's not what we're going to do. Gifts and, and things are important and there's different roles within the church and that's beautiful, but we're, there has to be a team that's actually leading together where there's accountability and we're working. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll introduce you to the team that leads this, this house. Number five, radical generosity and compassion. Antioch were incredibly generous. They, the prophetic word came, droughts coming to a whole region, and they rallied together to take care of a whole region. You know, the, the church of Jerusalem, that's thousands of people. It's incredible. And we're already, I just want you to know this, we're already beginning to see this in 24-7. In the last three years, we've sent, we've been into the Middle East five times. That's awesome. And we're about, it's about to get even more crazy. <clears throat> Number six, I love this. This one really beats in my heart. We want to be a community that build people that build vision. We don't want to be a community that goes after building vision at the expense of people. That's the difference between a business and a church. The church is not about building a system that's impressive at the expense of people, or a vision and mandate that's at the expense of people. It's about building people so that we can see the dream of God, the vision of God come alive. And I want you to know this, that we, we don't place value on what God's put inside of you based on whether you get this thing or not. Because just so you understand, this is like 5%, 10% of, the, of what the church does. This Majority of our time is actually spent out there in spheres of influence reaching people. So, so if we have a, a wrong perspective of how we value the gifts and how we value our role in the church. If we think the goal is to get here, then the goal of our Christianity is self-centered. And the Bible is quite clear that actually anytime you get an opportunity to do this, you get held to a much higher standard and it's not something you actually want to covet. It's quite terrifying actually. So I, I am not, I am not um, after this microphone or this pulpit. I'm just being real with you. It puts the fear of God in me. But what I love is that as a house, we can begin to create a culture where we value what God has put inside of you. That God's put assignments in your life, as long as they are in alignment with the Great Commission and the presence of the Lord and in the Word, then I believe it's time for us to begin to mobilize, commission, and, and, and ignite that in our, in our hearts and lives. I mean, I'm just thinking we have a lot of teachers, and, and you know, whether it's music schools, high schools, we have teachers in this community. I'm going, that's a, an incredible assignment to reach the next generation. And so the church might come and go, or people might come to the church and say, uh, what's your youth program? And I can go, well, we have eight teachers <laughs> reaching hundreds of young people every day. Hello. Oh, no, but where's the thing where I get to drop my kid off on a Friday night so I don't have to stress about them for three hours? No, that's called just not being a parent. I'm teasing, I'm teasing. Yes. 
I'm just keeping you awake. I've got to throw some things out because I can see the Netflix coming in your head. I just want to go home. <laughs> Mother's Day lunch. Oh. I heard something recently. Oh, man, I can't remember where I heard it, and I might totally butcher this, but it was something like this. This guy was sharing, and he said, we want to vote in the, the morals and values from a political figure that we don't teach at our dinner table. In other words, we're not going to see nations transformed because we get a better president and a better government. We're going to see nations transformed at, through families. So what I love is, like, instead of us trying to find successful programs, what if we actually equipped families to be healthy? And what I mean by that is just that you're equipped to, to love your kids well, to love each other well. You're equipped to, to disciple one another in truth. You get what I'm saying? It's really simple. But building people that builds vision. So my, my heart is this. I believe God has set the direction of 24-7 church, but He's called us to color it in. So we get to, color, we get to bring color with our, with our diversity, and that's my next point. I'll get there in a second. But what I love is there's a submission to, to leadership. There's a submission to God. There's a submission to one another. But it's actually empowering our diversity to see the uniqueness of what God's put in you come out. And that means that we know the direction that we're going in, but I don't know exactly what colors it, how it's going to look from a color point of view because it's coming out in the people of the community. And so suddenly you go, wow, I love that we're moving in that direction, but I didn't expect that color. Yeah. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Now there's a difference between being unique and being rebellious. Because yeah. there is a uniqueness that God's put inside of you, but sometimes we use that as an excuse to actually not want to submit to leadership and actually resist against... you get what I'm saying? I'm just touching it from all angles. Do you know that submission, in, in these next weeks I'll teach you that submission is empowerment. The world teaches submission as, as domination. It's like, well, there's this you know, over, overbearing, controlling, manipulative thing, and that's submission. No, it's not. Because why would Jesus submit to the Father if it was something like that, if he's equally God? No, submission empowers you. You can only walk in the authority that you first come under. So if you come under authority, and this is the thing, it's not even about whether the, the leaders that God puts in your life are right or wrong. See, honor far supersedes right or wrong. If you look at uh, David and Saul, it's such a beautiful picture of that where David had multiple opportunities to kill Saul, and Saul was a real pain in his butt. <laughs> right? And so there's opportunities David has to kill him, and he refuses to do it, and he says, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. And I'm going, the Lord's anointed? The guy's stuffed up the nation. He's lost his mind. He's going to mediums. He's doing weird stuff. But David's heart is postured in this place of humility, like, I'm not going to mess with the Lord's anointed. God's big enough to do this himself. I don't have to make it happen. That's the posture of submission that, that then actually propels you into what God's called you to do, right? So build people that build vision. And then that leads to the point number seven, diversity expressed in oneness. So diversity, but in a culture of oneness, that's what submission does. If I'm submitted to you and you're submitted to me, and we actually like, we're locked in as a family on this journey, then our diversity is something that is celebrated and empowers one another, not something that divides separates us. If your uniqueness gives you a reason to be different because you think you're better, that's where we've missed it. We're not trying to be different from one another. We're just trying to be authentic. Do you see the difference? 
Number eight, I love this, a prophetic and healing culture. We want to see a community with a prophetic culture, which we'll teach into. Maybe if you hear that word and you're like, what is that? We'll teach. But a prophetic and a healing culture that people get healed and transformed in environments where we, are, where we meet together. Number nine, a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. And the reason for that is not because we feel like we have to try and move God, but because we're actually cultivating a priestly rhythm of life. It's, it's us coming and knowing that we can come into the presence of the Lord, that we're living in this rhythm of ministering to Him, talking to Him, communing with Him, and also setting ourselves apart for the dream of God. It's very simple. Number 10, word-based. Everything we do has got to be scriptural. It's got to be based in the Word. Number 11, presence-centered. I, I asked the Lord this question this last week. I was just praying and I said, Lord, what does Joburg need from the church? Like, what, is the, what, can, what, what does the church carry that Joburg actually needs? And the, the first thing that dropped in my heart was this, environments of the presence of the Lord where people can pause and listen. And that sounds so simple, but I'm like, if you think about your life, how busy and crazy and wild it is and it's just nonstop and there's always stuff coming, to have environments of His presence where you can come and pause and listen to Him keeps us grounded in the voice of the Lord. Amen? So we want to be presence-centered in everything we do. And then the last one, number 12, a sending house. And we're going to get into this, that God has called us to reach not just our own city and our own nation, but actually the ends of the earth. And, uh, and so there's assignments in this house, and, and God wants us to train up and to send. Uh, you know, we use the word laborers because of the scripture that we read in Matthew 9, but Essentially, it's people who've just said yes to go and make disciples in the nations, to go and love people, to go and show them the heart of God. And it looks, it looks very different sometimes than we think it does. And, and it takes time and there's longevity to this. You know, it took two and a half years to get to where we are now by just faithfully going into um, Eurasia and the Middle East. Just, just going, building relationships, loving people, serving people. One of the local pastors, we earned his trust because we would just get there early and look for ways to serve and help stack the teacups and straighten the chairs. And that's what it looked like. That was missions for three trips before suddenly there was trust and like, okay, I see that your heart is actually for us. And, but the reality is we know that if we don't send, how do we expect the Great Commission to be fulfilled? And God can do it in a generation. I've been looking at the stats. We're one generation away. Everyone gets intimidated and scared by the 3.2 billion people that haven't heard his name. And it's like, yeah, it's a lot of people. But the, the stats are wild. It's something like 3,000 times the, the manpower uh, to fulfill the Great Commission in the, the, the church. We have 3,000 times the people. Like we have more than enough people. If everyone just, in a year, if everyone just went and told one person. Like the stats are just scary. Financially, the church is more than equipped to send. Can I just, this, we're going to shift this in our community, but do you know that um, less than 3% of missionaries go to the unreached? And it was very scary, the stat. I, I don't want to get it wrong, so I'm going to overreach, but it was something like 0.1% of our finances go towards reaching the unreached. This is the Western church. It's like not even a percent. It's something ridiculous like that. And then you go, so what are we spending all our our money on and it's like well I start to see the stadiums and and I'm just going man we could we could multiply reproduce and see the great commission fulfilled so much quicker and I believe God's doing that so he's creating Antioch communities apostolic centers all across the world 
And we're seeing it happening right now. God has connected us with communities carrying the same heart, the same DNA. And you know what it's marked by? I just want to say this. It's marked by humility. It's marked by a group of people who choose the low place because Jesus flows in the low places. It's, this is not, we are not claiming to be the answer and have everything. We're just saying Jesus is the answer and he wants to co-labor with his church. So God's going to put a zeal in our hearts and in the church to say yes to his dream. Because sitting under this and, and hearing what I'm saying is one thing and, and what it'll do is start to poke your heart. And can I just say this? Can I be so bold as to say that maybe we've actually come to the times, the days, maybe we're actually living in the days where we're going to have to make some big, wild, courageous decisions that don't make sense to our earthly mind and don't make sense to our 20-year success plan. I don't want to stand before Jesus one day and say, Lord, here is my bank account. I managed to own this amount of cars. I even gave away this amount of cars and houses and I gave to this charity and this donation. And I don't want to have that as my answer to Jesus one day. I'm just being honest. That's not success. I want to stand before Jesus, look him in the eye and say, we were burning together. I said yes to the things that you said yes to. What you put in my heart, we ran. One moment you asked me to build up that business and then you told me to sell it but you told me to sell it and you told me to do this. And one moment I was doing that. One, like it just, it doesn't matter what it looks like. Yeah, Lord, you told me to. I mean, my family have lived this. The Lord said, move to Zimbabwe. We sold everything we had. My dad had just finished his dream house that month, built everything with my grandfather. Thing looked amazing. My mom had her dream car, Taz Sport. Dream car, right? For six months, she'd had it. And then the Lord said, go to Zimbabwe. And they sold everything. And we sold everything thinking God moved us to Zimbabwe forever. And a year, just over a year later, we get force, forcibly removed from the country because God's doing amazing things and we have a British surname. Uh, and so they get upset and remove us from the country. We come back to Joburg going, what just happened? We just, we just gave everything away. We, just, we, we sold everything, gave stuff away. We had two weeks of clothing in a trailer, moved into an empty house. We lived in a, a house with mattresses and garden furniture in our lounge for a year. And when people would come and there'd be death threats and they'd be intimidating us and trying to scare us away, our church community would come and sleep outside our bedroom door with baseball bats. And that's what that year looked like. And then suddenly we're back in Joburg, removed out of the country like, what was that, God? We gave everything up. I thought this is what you wanted us to do. See, it's not about right and wrong. And it's not about, well, God, are you sure you've got my retirement in mind? Are you sure you've got this and that sorted out? No, he's my father and he's a good father and I can trust him. And so if he says, do this today, that's what I can do. And if he says, do that tomorrow, that's what I'll do. Because I can be faithful with today, but I don't know what's coming tomorrow. And the world is trying to speak to us. And this is why you end up saying yes to things that are actually suffocating you, not bringing any life or joy. It's because you're saying yes to things out of fear of the future instead of saying yes to the Father today for the things that are on his heart because you can look at the future and smile knowing that he's a good God. You know, for us not to do that only means one thing, that our salary became Lord instead of Him. And I know that God has put a lot of us, majority of this room, He has put you in the corporate world because He wants to reach the corporate world. He has put you in businesses and spheres of influence because He loves people and He wants you to reach them. All I'm saying is just make sure your heart is not tied to the ways and the systems of that place. Make sure your heart is given to Him, that you are there because you heard Him say, be there. That's what it means to be an Antioch in Joburg. If we want to see people reached, 
We're going to have to find ways over and under the walls of society to get into each other's lives and actually see people touched, changed, loved, and transformed. You with me? So I want to encourage you over these next couple of weeks, um, we're going to dive into this and we're going to begin to unpack step by step just more and more of what it means to be 24-7, what God's building in this house, where we're going. And I believe many of you will begin to find the assignments of God uh, that, that He's placed in your heart in this space. Because I think if, if we come here and we're not mobilized, if this is not a catalytic movement to propel us into the calling of God over our lives, then we're doing something wrong. If it's easy to be comfortable, if, if 24-7 becomes a church of comfort, then I, I'm worried because we, we stop needing the comforter. Like I want to, I want to um, spur you on and, and, and poke you a little bit and make you a little bit uncomfortable to go, God has more for me. And then I can trust the Holy Spirit who is the comforter to come and comfort your hearts if you're a little bit afraid or upset or offended. Or It's okay because we're a family. We love each other. We're invested in each other's lives and we want to see the kingdom of God established. And the beautiful thing is this, that it's fully, fully dependent on Him. He can carry the weight. He's not looking for you to have it all together. He's looking for your yes. And I, if you're here today and, and maybe this is a little bit more like community language and you're going, man, I really need something from my heart, then I want to encourage you, like, go and listen. We've, we've just done a whole thing. We've preached on the grace of God for weeks and weeks. Like, you need to hear the message of grace because it's the message of grace that saves us. But you've not just been saved from something. You've been saved into something. And we want to unpack what that means for us as a community and what it's going to look like going forward. If we have a vision for life that's heavenly, if we have a vision for our lives that's bigger than success on the earth, because all those things that we've spent so long trying to, to have and build, when you die, it doesn't go with you. So if, it do, if it's not of eternal worth, it definitely can't satisfy your eternal heart. Yeah. Amen? Amen? I hope you're encouraged. Some of you are like... Oh. <laughs> You've got to be this side one day. Everybody should get a chance just to stand here because it's very, very interesting. But it's okay because I also know that sometimes conviction comes and you're thinking and processing and that's good. And can I just say this? You probably won't remember most of what I've said and that's okay because my heart is not to try and educate you in a certain way or that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to provoke your heart to seek the Lord and find His heart because when you find His heart, when you ask Him for His heart, something changes. I never, ever, ever set out to be a Middle East person or a nations person. or That was not what we were doing. We found ourselves crying out for Him. God, we want your heart. And the next thing, we're weeping over people in places that we, we weren't thinking about. And we started to care about things we didn't care about before. The key here is, is His heart. And that's what He's inviting us into. Does that make sense? Amen. Do you want to stand with me? I'll pray real quick and then Mother's Day lunch is waiting. It's an absolute privilege and an absolute joy to be a part of this community, to be a part of your lives, to lead a community like this is a joy because I just know we're positioned for so much more and um, God's going to do really beautiful things in and through you. And I can't wait as a leader to see the diversity of the dream of God expressed through this house. I know there's so much more that's ahead and so it's a, it's a great joy. But I want to pray for us and then we can go and have fun.
Holy Spirit, I thank you for the goodness of God in this community, that your hand is so faithful and steady upon us. And I thank you this morning that we came together to worship you, to love you, to minister to you. And I, I pray, Lord, that this environment has been one that has ministered to you and pleased your heart. We didn't come here for ourselves, we came here for you. Lord, I thank you that as we are introducing this theme of talking about Antioch and what you're doing in your church and how you've prepared us. There's a, a prototype and a blueprint of what you've called your church to be. And this morning we're saying, God, we say yes to your dream. We say yes to what you want in your house, your bride, your body. And I pray, it's our mission statement and, and language for this house, but I, I pray it over us, God, that we would be a bride for your glory, a body for your name, and a people of your presence, a resting place, a dwelling place for your glory, Lord. Father, I thank you for the assignments of God over every person in this room. And Lord, I ask that over these next couple of weeks, you would begin to stir that up in us, that you would bring clarity, that you would begin to settle our hearts, that there would be focus around what you have spoken to our hearts. Lord, not our own ideas, not what seems right to man. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to man and its end is death and destruction. Lord, we don't want the way that seems right. We want you. And so God, I bless this house and I bless every person here. And I thank you even as we sang the songs over Asia and prayed for different places. God, thank you that you would move our hearts to care about the things you care about. Right here in our city, in our nation, and also in the nations of the earth. So we take a moment to just stop and pause and to say, Lord, give us your heart. In the midst of the busyness of Joburg, in the midst of the culture that we live in, Thank you that you say we can lift our heads up. We can be lifted up because we're living gateways and ancient doors. And you, the King of glory, want to come in. We want to see you walk in to the lives of everyone in our sphere of influence, in our homes, in our families, in our workspaces, and in our city. So we glorify you today. We worship you. We're excited about what's to come. And Father, I, I do just bless every person in this room. And I just say thank you that they have a heart for you and they want to be in a room like this to be together, to be one, and to be with you. So I bless this house. Thank you for today. I bless the moms. Thank you as we celebrate them this afternoon. It'll be such a, a beautiful time of family and celebrating. And uh, we just say thank you for all that you have done, all that you're doing right now, and all that you're still to do in us and through us. We worship you. We bless you. In Jesus' name. Amen.